This morning we're talking about the book of Ruth. This is a theme of faithfulness. Jewish tradition in the Talmud suggests that Samuel may have written it. The story opens in Moab, a Gentile region east of Judah, where Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth are widows and have fallen on hard times. Living without hope in Moab, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem and Ruth goes with her and pledges loyalty to Israel's God. Providential circumstances result in Ruth becoming the wife of Boaz, uh, the relative who rescues her from being no longer bound to her deceased husband. So let's turn to the book of Ruth and just go through the first chapter. This is where Ruth loses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man from Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the land of Moab. Elamech and uh, he and his wife and two, uh, he and his wife and two sons, and his name was Elamech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimech, the husband of Nome, Nome, Naomi, excuse me, died, so she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives for themselves. The name of one was Oprah and the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Then they also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So she got up with her daughters-in-law to return from the land of Moab. She had heard that Moab had visited his people. She had heard that the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. She set out from the place where she had been with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters, Go, return to each of your mother's houses. May the Lord deal with you kindly as you have dealt with your deceased husbands and me. May the Lord grant you each will find rest in the house of a new husband. Then she kissed them, but they raised their voices and wept aloud. They said to her, we will return with you and your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why would you go with me? Are there sons in my womb who would become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me that I could have a husband tonight and give birth to sons, would you wait until they were grown? Would you refrain from getting married? No, my daughters. It is much more bitter for me than you, for the hand of the Lord has turned against me. They raised their voices and wept aloud once more. Oprah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Return with her. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I'll go. And wherever you stay, I'll stay. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there... I'll be buried. May the Lord do this for me, 
and worse, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women asked, is this Naomi? But she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And the Hebrew in Mara means bitter <clears throat> because the Almighty has brought great bitterness to me. I was full when I left, but the Lord has caused me to return empty. Why should you call me Naomi when the Lord has opposed me? The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from the land of Moab with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. They came to Bethlehem at the start of the spring harvest season. So may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning. Here's a question to get us started this morning. Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? The backstory of the oldest narrative in Scripture is the long standing human discomfort with suffering, and particularly with the suffering of the innocent, be they innocent oxen donkeys, sheep, camels, servants, or children. And even more perplexing, the suffering of the righteous innocent, the ones who don't deserve it. In a few short paragraphs, the Bible tells of a man, possibly the wealthiest, wisest, and most faithful of anyone on earth. His life is shattered by a rapid-fire sequence of devastations, his wealth annihilated, his health obliterated, his children exterminated, his wisdom confounded. His wife forsakes him, his friends shame him, his God seemingly hides from him. All this happening within the first couple of dozen sentences of the story, which raises a difficult question. Does God deal with his creatures on the basis of love? Or does he not? A question that the following 40 chapters seeks to address. And you know the name of the lead character in that story, don't you? It was Job. And through the ages, Job has become kind of a patron saint for innocent people whose lives have tragically imploded and collapsed. They know not why. People who have suffered greatly while enduring the silence of God. But the story of Job has a lesser twin in the Bible, a story we don't call to mind so quickly in this context, a story in which the circumstances of its lead character mirror remarkably those of the legendary saint. And you know the name of the lead character in that story too, don't you? It is Naomi. The Book of Ruth. We tend to think of the book of Ruth as a romance. It is not. It is a story that seeks to answer the same question Job poses. Does God deal with his creatures on the basis of love or does he not? Especially when tragedy strikes. 
In less than a dozen sentences, seven actually, tragedy obliterates Naomi's life work, reduces her value to zero, and calls into question God's love for her. In Job's story, the calamity comes suddenly. In Naomi's, it's more of a slow-motion train wreck, stretching out over years, punctuated by appalling losses, famine, death of a husband, death of a first son, death of a final son. But the result for both Naomi and Job is the same. They both end up on the ash heap. Whereas Job at least still has a home and a reputation as a once great man, Naomi has neither of these. She's a famine refugee, remember, at the very bottom of the local social pecking order. And although Naomi at least still has her health, in fact, she actually out-Job's Job in one way, and here's why. Job is a man, and grievous though his losses are, and they are, at least he can start over. He can begin again. He has options. But Naomi is a woman. She is spent. Her story is over. There will be no starting again for her. She does have one advantage that Job did not have, although she doesn't know it yet, and that's what we'll think about this morning. To get the visceral impact uh, from this story that God wants us to have, you've got to be able to see it through the Job glasses. To see Naomi as a female Job rather than as a romantic matchmaker for her seductive little daughter-in-law. She's not going home to start over. She's going home to Bethlehem to run out the clock and die. That's where we left Naomi last Sabbath. We're spending a few weeks together in the book of Ruth. This is our second look. It is a wonderful story. I promised you a reference in case you want to dig deeper, so here it is. Carolyn, James, uh, Carolyn Custis James' excellent little book, Ruth, uh, Finding God in the Margins. I happened on this book by accident. As you remember, I told you last week, only I don't think it was really an accident. This book is simply outstanding. If you want to read a book on, on Ruth and you only get one choice, this would be it. Six bucks for the ebook or seven for a used paperback plus postage. It's short, wonderfully written, very respectful of the biblical text. And I hope you'll purchase it after I'm finished with the series because I'm going to share quite a bit of her material with you as we go along, and I'm not going to um, reference everything as we go, so just know that, okay? Now, if you want an expanded version, you can get the Gospel of Ruth. It's by the same author. It's twice as long. It's not quite twice as expensive, but every bit is good. In fact, this one's probably actually better than the short one, but get one of them, all right? And I'll give you the reference again for them later uh, as, as we come to the end of the series. We'll pick up this, the story this morning with verse 6 of Ruth chapter 1. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of her people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. 
The author is careful to tell us here that Naomi is going with her two daughters-in-law. She says it twice, in fact. The question is, why are there three women on the road about to cross the Arnon River instead of just one? Why are these two girls going with Naomi? Why don't they just stay in Moab where life might be a little bit better for them? In Moab, they might have a sliver of a chance at a new life, slim as it may be, but there is absolutely none in Bethlehem. They should just say, Mama, we love you, but we ain't going. This is home. They should say, Mama, it's a dangerous, dangerous journey. It's 50 long miles of dry, lonely road. It will take us seven days walking, and we are th three poor widows all alone. God knows what awaits us on that road. We could be raped. We could be kidnapped. Who will defend us? Who will even care? They should just say no. We will not go. They do not. Why? And the answer to that question is found in that word that we looked at last week, the word patriarchy. You remember what that is, right? Patriarchy is a social system that privileges men over women, where the lives of men command the storyline and the focus and the resources and the opportunity, and women, with very few exceptions, recede into the background. In cultures driven by patriarchy, women derive their value from men, from their husbands, from their fathers, and from their sons, especially sons. Sons are patriarchy's gold standard for determining the value of a woman. You remember that, right? That was last week. There was a nurse who was being interviewed. She was an obstetrical nurse who worked in a large hospital in India. India is one of the nations where patriarchy is still practiced to some extent today. This nurse said that when a woman gives birth in India and the doctor announces that it's a, it's a boy, uh, the family members who have gathered there greet that statement with, ce uh, with celebrations and cheer and noise. But if the doctor comes in and says, it's a girl, guess what the response is? Silence. No cheering. The words, it's a girl, they're not happy words. The nurse said that in India, if the baby is a girl, sometimes the mother won't hold the baby, won't even touch the baby. The nurses have to coax and plead and almost force the mother to embrace the baby. Not in every case, of course, and it is changing, but often it's common. You can watch the Netflix film, Gunjan Saxena, the Cargill girl. It's a true story of the first female helicopter pilot in the Indian Air Force. If you want to get an idea of the struggles that even modern women have and they still face in patriarchal nations. We think, well, that's India. I'm glad we don't live there. Let me tell you a story. My mother was the oldest of four children born to my grandfather and grandmother Nestor. She was born in 1930. Two years later, her sister, my Aunt Ruth, was born. I don't know if she was named after the Ruth of the Bible or not. My grandparents were not Bible-reading people. 
Two years after Aunt Ruth was born, Grandma had twins, my Aunt Ellen and Uncle Kenneth. Kenneth was born last. He was number four. You know what my grandmother used to say? She would say, after three kids, I finally got my boy, but I had to take a girl to get him. Do you think when my Aunt Ellen heard her mother say that, that she felt valued? Another story. In Colette's family, she was daughter number three. Janine was born first. A year later, Nanette came along. Three years after that, Colette was born. My father-in-law had once had a French girlfriend, hence the names of his daughters. He also had a yearning for a son. On the day his third daughter was born, do you know what he did? He cried. And that story was also repeatedly told within the family. How would it feel to know that your daddy was so disappointed when you were born that he cried? He eventually got his boy, number four, and once that happened, the factory was closed. Now, my little stories are not deadly stories, but they are value stories that illustrate the kind of worth patriarchy places on women, even patriarchy light. In many nations today, fathers of baby girls can do much more than cry and tell a story. They can simply let their daughters die. They can simply not give them vitamins or good health care. They can simply not allow them to go to school and become educated. They can even sell them. In patriarchal cultures, families, usually fathers, negotiate marriages with one overall intention in mind. They want to enhance the family's stature in the community. That was the culture in the, of the day in the, in the time of Ruth. This has two implications for the story. First, it means that both Ruth and Orpah were not considered to be worth much in their own families of origin. Why not? Because what Moabite father could have possibly enhanced his family's stature by marrying his daughter to a foreign famine refugee? What advantage could he have possibly gained by marrying her off to a family who had nothing of benefit, no status, no wealth, no land? The whole point of marriage negotiations was to marry up. Malon and Kilon were loser husbands, so Ruth and Orpah were certainly not trophy wives by any stretch of the imagination. If you've ever seen or heard of the film Johnny Lingo, well, these girls were one cow women. Ruth, of course, will demonstrate before the story is over that she is anything but, and Orpah will too. But there's more, because within patriarchy, a bride is absorbed into her husband's family. She will build up her husband's family by giving him sons. That's why sons are so valuable. They build up your family, but daughters just build up the family of some other man. Marriage is a financial transaction where money, the bride price, exchanges hands, and in the process, the bride becomes the, the property of the husband's family. So when Naomi sets out on the road, Ruth and Orpah have no choice 
They must go with her. They belong to her. And by the way, this is exactly backwards from God's original intention. He never intended women to be absorbed by the man's family. He said, for this cause, a man and will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. You see, women are more than property to be bartered. That's the way it was from the very beginning, back to Eden. So there they are on the road, three destitute women embarking on a dangerous journey. Everything they own, which isn't much, they have with them. Likely they have at least an animal that they have loaded with provisions and the few material possessions that remain from their shattered lives. And right here on this dusty road out of Moab, Naomi will perform the first sacrificial act of compassion in the story. And given her distressed state of mind and despair for the future, it is a breathtaking kingdom of God kind of decision she makes here. She will emancipate her daughters-in-law. Not because she doesn't love them, she does. Not because she doesn't need them but because she will put their interests and their futures ahead of her own, at the expense of her own. She will send them on and travel home alone. Here we get our first glimpse into what makes Naomi tick. She is that kind of woman. Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back each of you to your mother's home, which is interesting in passing. She didn't send them to their father's home. Go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. Embedded in the middle of Oxford's bustling Broad Street in England is a simple stone cross. Every year, thousands of tourists gazing up at the spires of Oxford's famous skyline, along with uh, local pedestrians preoccupied with everyday errands, walk right over that marker without ever knowing they're treading on sacred ground. That X in that street marks the spot where, in 1555, Anglican bishops Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake for their Christian beliefs. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, the dying Latimer cried out. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. It was a moment of such significance in England that uh, Oxford wants never to forget. Well, somewhere along a, a long-forgotten road leading north out of Moab, surely God's angels have marked with an X another historic spot where three destitute widows made choices that would reverberate for good down through the centuries of time. Now, in the book of Ruth, there are two important words and three Old Testament laws that you've got to understand in order to get the full impact of the story. In verse 8, we come to the first of the two words. 
Naomi pronounces a blessing upon her two girls. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. That word kindness, only it's not really the word. It says kindness, but that's not it. It's just a little piece of it. Have you ever known somebody who sometimes uses words that are too big for the occasion? My wife will often do this. My wife likes to use the word awesome. Okay? Awesome is a big word. It's what you might call a power word. It should only be used to describe something that's truly breathtaking. But Colette will use it to describe ordinary things. Like if she asks the musicians if they will worship at 6 o'clock instead of 7, if they say yes, she'll say awesome. And I'm thinking, well, that's hardly awesome. It might be nice of them. It might be convenient, you know. But awesome should only be used if Matt Redman and Twyla Paris are coming to worship practice. That would be truly awesome. Well, sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes somebody will use a word that's too small, a word that simply does not reflect the awesome meaning of what they are trying to say. In this verse, that word kindness is just such a word. In the Hebrew word behind this word is the word hesed. And hesed is one of the biggest power words in the Old Testament. Whole books have been written on the, on the meaning of this ancient, beautiful Hebrew word. What agape is to love in the New Testament, hesed is to love in the Old Testament, only more. It's a 1 Corinthians first, uh, 13 kind of word for the Old Testament. And part of the problem with this word is that it has no English equivalent. And so, depending upon the context, translators will use words or groups of words like kindness or loving kindness or steadfast love or faithfulness or mercy or loyalty or everlasting love. But Hesed gathers up all those singular meanings into a unified concept. It is a God-like love that never gives up, never runs out, never stops loving, never stops rescuing those who have fallen into dire straits. It is a love lavished upon the undeserving. It is the term that God uses to describe himself in Exodus 34 after Moses asks to see him and God hides him in the rock there and passes by and introduces himself. God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What's even more remarkable about God's assurance of Hesed here is that he says these things right after his people have been worshiping the golden calf. They certainly don't deserve it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, writes Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. His mercies never come to an end. There it is again. You know. Even when his people have rebelled against him, even then they can appeal to his hesed. They are new every morning. Great is your hesed, says Jeremiah. 
all the more stunning when you consider that he writes these things as Jerusalem was being sacked as a judgment on his people's wickedness. Most of the time, Hesed is a word used to describe how God loves. Psalm 136 uses it 26 times. For instance, his love endures forever. And if you want to get a little bit of an idea of what Hesed actually looks like, there are 26 examples, 26 definitions of it in Psalm 136. You can go home and read it today. But sometimes in Scripture, this word is used to describe the action of a person who is mirroring God's love. In the book of Ruth, there are two people who are said to love in this kind of way. Guess who they are? Ruth and Orpah, the two Moabites. The wives from among the forbidden people, raised among those who worship a detestable God. They have loved like Israel's God loves. Wow. Maybe these girls weren't such one-cow women after all. Maybe there was something deep and true and loyal and good about their characters. Naomi says, you have both shown hesed to your husbands. You have shown it to me, but now you've got to go back because there is no future for you in the land of Judah. Even among your own people, it's going to be bleak because people know you're not able to have children. But maybe God will show you his hesed. Maybe he will cause some husband to take you on as wife number two or three because you are good workers. But that could never happen in Bethlehem. There you will always be a Moabite, always an alien, always alone, always unprotected and destitute and at the mercy of the powerful. So go home, girls. Ruth and Orpah are undeterred. They vow to go on with her. This is where the feminine flavor of the story, this is where we taste it, okay? There are tears and kisses. If it had been men, it would have been cursing and bravado. Naomi raises the stakes. She's doing a kind of terrible cost-benefit analysis here. Verse 11, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Here we've come to the first of the three Old Testament laws that we need to understand. Leverate marriage. It's called that nowadays because the word lever is the, uh, the, the Latin word meaning the husband's brother. Before God's people crossed into the promised land, he made provision for families who might experience the death of a husband with no children. That's where this comes from. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Moses writes, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her, 
and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is more than just an insurance policy for widows, although it is that. The concern here is about real estate and economics. You remember that one of the three promises that God made to Abraham was for land. God would bring his people into a land he promised to give them as their own possession, a homeland. And God was very particular and very careful to ensure that each of the 12 tribes received their allotted inheritance, which would be parceled out among the clans and the families in the tribe, and then passed down to the next generation within the families by way of inheritance. Now, because we live in a sinful, selfish world, the people of ancient times faced the same kind of problems that we face today. And one of the problems they face was the growing wealth disparity between rich and poor. Have you heard people talking about this? We've heard that, haven't we? This is what, this, this is what drives ideas like universal basic income and socialism and all kinds of other nutty ideas. Over time, the more powerful people in any society tend to gather up more of the wealth, and the least powerful people in any society tend to lose it. But that's not how, thing, how God wanted things to operate in his economy, among his people. So he, des he designed a number of countercultural principles that would operate within fallen cultures, his particularly, to keep less powerful people from being swallowed up by more powerful people. One of those was the sabbatical year. Another one was the jubilee. And one was the idea of leverate marriage that Moses writes about here in Deuteronomy. This one was all also practiced by some cultures outside of Israel, and it provided protection for a family suffering the loss of a husband, so that the inheritance of the dead man might not be swallowed up, but be passed on to the next generation where it needed to be. The law stipulated that the dead man's blood brother was to marry his widow, and the first son born of that union would be a stand-in for the dead man's son that he never had. And so his property could be rightfully passed on. That's what Naomi is talking about here. But you have to notice carefully what she's saying. She says the material protection that might have come to Ruth and Orpha through the Leverite provision is not available to them or to her. Why not? Because there are no more sons. They're all dead. And Naomi is postmenopausal. She will never have any more children. There will be no stand-ins for either Malon or Kilion. Their family lines are finished. Their stories are over. So Ruth and Orpah, if they stay with Naomi, will be dead ends. And then she says this. No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you. Why? Because at least they have some slim chance to survive if they go home to Moab. But, Mo, but Naomi will not survive. Why not? 
because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Okay. And here we come to the root, the heart of the matter. Of all the things Naomi has lost, her homeland, her husband, her sons, her hope for the future, this is her deepest fear, that she has somehow suffered the greatest loss of all, the loss of Yahweh, her God. He has withdrawn his hesed from her, and she doesn't understand why. Some scholars say Naomi's suffering was her own fault because she had fallen away from God. Her family had traveled to Moab. Israelites were not supposed to associate with Moabites, so she was kind of getting what she deserved here, you know, cause and effect. And that's why a lot of us suffer too, isn't it? I mean, we make boneheaded choices. We rebel. I say you can't fix stupid. And we jump to the conclusion and we make judgments on people pretty fast. I would suggest that is not the reason and we'll see why in just a moment. Our call to worship verses this morning put a little bit of voice to what Naomi feels here. Has your loving kindness, has your hesed vanished forever? Will it never come back? Rather than to judge her and criticize her, this moment should evoke our compassion. This is her Job moment on the road, road out of Moab. You remember what Job said, don't you? All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. The Almighty has made me taste bitterness of soul. And we have compassion for Job. Naomi cries, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Later, she will say, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full but he has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. Neither Naomi nor Job could understand it, couldn't figure it out. And they both carried their questions and their grief over lost loved ones to the grave. We have the inside story on Job. We know what went on behind the scenes there. With Naomi, we don't know. But we can guess, can't we? We can guess. We know who is behind so much of the suffering. Naomi's statements here really bring us to the, to the heart of the story. Does God deal with his creatures on the basis of love? Is he truly a God of Hesed? That's the question. Verse 14. At this they wept again. Then... Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi's arguments hit their mark with Orpah. She's heard enough. She's seen enough. Clearly, all signs point to Moab, and she will take her freedom and go home. Notice that the writer offers no criticism of the girl. Naomi has praised her character. Naomi has blessed her. But the writer clearly intends for us to contrast her actions with Ruth, not because Orpah is selfish or wicked, but because she is the sensible one of the two. She makes the good choice, and she does what she has been told to do by her mother-in-law. And not only that, 
but with her leaving, Orpah delivers up a final clinching argument for Naomi to use, a little bit of peer pressure. Look, she says, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But this time her words transform a simple, practical decision into a theological choice. And it's a stunning moment in this story when Naomi is finally outmatched by her fiercely determined daughter-in-law whose will has become as immovable as a granite wall. Though her, through her mother-in-law's words, Ruth reaches a fork in the road where the stakes in her decision rise to the cosmic level. This will not be a choice between destitute or prosperity. This is a choice between her people's God and Naomi's God, between Chemosh and Yahweh, the very God, in fact, that Naomi has been, Naomi has been railing against. Ruth now makes a radical costly decision. Ruth now tells her mother-in-law plainly to be quiet. Just stop already. No more urging me. I have made my choice. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, there I will die and there I will be buried. And then she uses life-threatening language to cement her vow. May the Lord, and notice she uses the covenant-keeping name of the Lord here. The, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. And you can almost see Ruth standing there making a violent slashing motion across her throat as she delivers these words. Can you imagine the impact this would have had on Naomi standing there on that road at that place marked X? We've all probably heard these words at wedding ceremonies, and they're certainly appropriate for that. But in the context of the story, they are extraordinary words. For one thing, a young woman within patriarchy making, making decisions is not part of her job description. She has no voice. But here, Ruth is decisive and she finds her voice and she uses it. It won't be the last time either. And her decision flies in the face of the evidence in front of her. Ruth knows Naomi's right. The path ahead will be tremendously difficult. Yet she not only binds herself to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. Why does she do that? Because of the power of the gospel. From this point on, she is no longer Ruth the Moabitess, although she will be called that. She is Ruth the Israelite, a child of Yahweh, and she will commit herself to live like one. How can that be? Because somewhere in those years together as a family in Moab, Ruth caught a glimpse of the goodness of the living God in the way they spoke, maybe, the times they prayed together, the choices they made, the integrity with which they lived their lives, even the way that they bore up under suffering. Ruth watched and pondered. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, guess what his name means? 
El is God. Melech is king. God is king. God is king. In the days when everyone did what was best in their own eyes, which means everyone did pretty much what they darn well wanted to do, Elimelech lived as if God was king. You know, people watch. People will know if God is really a God worth following by watching the lives of people who claim to follow him. Even Naomi's name was a whisper that life is better when God is king. Naomi's name means sweetness or pleasant. Do you suppose Ruth ever wondered, how'd she get that name anyway? What kind of man would give his daughter that kind of name? Who would rejoice and celebrate and consider his life more pleasant because his wife had given him a daughter rather than a son? What would it be like to actually live in a community with men like that? No, Elimelech and Naomi were not the perfect little family, but they were honest-hearted followers of the true God. And when you've been living your whole life in darkness, even a flickering light has the power to pull you forward. That's the power of the gospel. It's the choice between darkness and light. And these are the choices that we make every day between darkness and light, some of them big, some of them small. Even at her lowest, Naomi was still a light bearer. And although she doesn't realize it yet, God has begun to answer Naomi's deepest question. He has not withdrawn his hesed from her. He will let it flow to her through Ruth. Ruth will be her friend and stick with her to the very end. And you know what Ruth's name means too, don't you? You know. It means friend. Friend. What would you call it if a community of people decided to bind themselves together as friends? with the same fierce, unshakable commitment that Ruth had for Naomi and live together as if God were truly king. What would you call something like that? Maybe you'd call it church. And that's where we will leave our story today and pick it up next week.